Hey guys, Ethan here. Usually we do a little joke bit at the beginning of these podcasts. Is that okay with you, Aaliyah? What were you saying? I wasn't listening. This is a problem in our relationship that I'd like to address. You often are not listening to me, and I would love it if we could work on that sometime. I'll do a Diet Coke, and then if they have curly fries, I'll do that. I'm not a restaurant. This is not a drive-thru. Yeah, sure. Just email me, and then we'll set up a call. You want? I'll just go pick up food. What do you, you want? Curly fries? Um, I'll do, do you guys have Frosties? What do you mean you guys? I'm telling you, I'm going to go pick up. And I guess I can go to Wendy's if you want a Frosty specifically. Okay, yeah. And then we'll do a double shot. A double shot of what? I'll do a double shot and then if... A shot of what? Coffee or alcohol or what? (laughs) Do they do... do... Who is they? (laughs) Do they do truffle? Did the movie get it right? Science, or will we have to fight? Bad, 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 bad science. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bad Science. I'm your host, Ethan Edinburgh. This is the show where we break down the science of a film with a comedian and a scientist. And today is a special day because we are talking about Fight Club 1999's David Fincher, Ed Norton, Brad Pitt, Helena Bonham Carter. Brilliant film. Uh, I'm a huge fan of this movie. Always have been. It's based on the book by Chuck Palahniuk, which I didn't realize that's how you pronounce his name, but I looked that up today, who actually prefers this film to his own novel, which I feel like is usually not the case. Usually the book is way better. But um, anyways, there's music by the Dust Brothers, and I just, I love everything about this movie, and I think that it gets a bad rap, but we're going to get into it with my two amazing guests. First of all, she is a writer and the host of the upcoming Consider This Media podcast, Science Communicators, Aliyah Kamalova. Hey, what's up? What's up, Aaliyah? <laughs> oh, nothing. Just here to talk about Fight Club. Yeah, that's right. And you love to fight. <laughs> yeah, I actually do have a, my own Fight Club ring, so... That's awesome. And are you like the, the ringleader of this fight club? Yeah, I am. And do you punch more or kick more? Uh, definitely kick. Kick and then I just run away. Oh, okay. And that works out. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's allowed in fight club. Uh, technically, no, but since I'm the leader, I can do whatever I want. Man, that's awesome. Well, hopefully we can recruit our next guest into your fight club today. Uh, <laughs> he is an associate professor at the Stanford University School of Medicine, Dr. Andrew D. Huberman. Great to be here. Great to have you, sir. Dr. D, can I call you that? Uh, well, I, Dr. Drew? I'm, a, <laughs> I'm definitely not the Dr. Drew. Let's <laughs> go with, since I'm not a medical doctor, I don't prescribe anything. I'm, I'm a professor, so I profess mm. lots of things. So Professor um, Andrew Huberman, or just Andrew is fine. For uh, I'm rather informal. Well, I'll, I'll come up with various nicknames throughout the program, and I'm sure it'll annoy <laughs> sure. you. Um, so you work in the Department of Neurobiology and the Department of Ophthalmology, and your lab has two main goals, uh, the first of which is you do not talk about neurobiology. Little Fight Club joke, sorry about that. Um, your actual <laughs> first goal is to discover strategies for halting and reversing vision loss in blinding diseases. Wow. That's really That's cool. right. We're, we're working hard um, to try and cure blindness. Uh, we have a clinical trial running now, uh, and that's about half of what my lab does. Correct. Okay, so I have several questions about that, but I think our other guest has a very specific question about this. Um, I don't know how specific it is, but <laughs> I definitely spent a lot of time in the ophthalmology department because of my own weird vision problems. So this is very, I feel like it'll be very interesting. Maybe I'll be cured by then in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) That that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be uh, probably our best episode if you could cure something by just an audio format. That's pretty cool. We'd probably have to pivot the entire podcast as a spinoff series of just me figuring out my vision problems. Yeah. 
Well, I make no promises about that, but I, but I'm happy to discuss um, <laughs> anything related to vision and uh, disorders of vision and what's being done to repair them as you like. Wow. Okay, then I'm going to get into my problem. <laughs> let's do it. We will talk about Fight Club, but first let's cure Aaliyah's vision. <laughs> so I was in the lobby at Kaiser. Um, no. So basically, I have a really weird vision problem, which is what I've self-diagnosed as like visual snow. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. I mean, there are a couple different causes of that. Again, I'm not a clinician. I'm a research right. scientist, but that could be due to any number of different things. So you see these as like little... Uh, like kind of little orbs of light that set, that spontaneously take off or well, so it looks like sometimes white noise. It's on kind of like more white noise, but very, very, very subtle. Like I can still see fine, whatever. I just notice it if I like focus on it, if that makes sense. But it's not like at all um, disturbing my vision in any sort of sense. But I do also get aura migraines to another visual, I don't know if they're connected at all, but those just pass like any annoying migraines do, which is why I was at an ophthalmologist's office who was like trying to figure out what's up with me and turns out nothing's wrong. And so that's just how we left it. (laughs) And it's just like, well, if it's not bothering you a lot, it's just kind of like this weird, annoying, um, this like static. And I had basically another doctor said their diagnosis was, well, you just see the world differently. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> so um, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Well, auras and migraines can be pretty unpleasant. The, um, I mean, so there are a number of different things that can uh, lead to these kinds of situations. You know, sometimes it's spontaneous activation of the retina, um, meaning you're detecting light that isn't there. Sometimes it's something related to the vasculature, the blood supply, the retina, that none of this is reason for you to be concerned, by the way. Um, that, you know, photophobia is a very common side effect of migraine and vice versa. Photophobia is when looking at light is painful. You know, if you ever had a mm-hmm. cold or flu, bright light is kind of painful. There are a lot of um, mechanisms in the brain and nervous system that get us to want to kind of um, go dormant and hide ourselves from stimulation when, when we're sick. It's just designed to slow us down and, and get us into reparative mode. Animals are exceptionally good at responding to this. Humans tend to focus on, well, why is bright light bothering me? Whereas animals will just go into a corner and just kind of, you know, huddle for a while until they start to feel better. Um, so we could have a long discussion and go down any of these rabbit holes. Um, how about this? How about uh, after this, I'll make sure to put you in contact with somebody who uh, could do what we call a curbside consult, which means they'll just kind of take an assessment and, and try and help figure out how, based on how often this is happening and, um, and we'll see what we can do. Uh, since, you know, in the time scale of the of this recording, we probably won't have time to go into the full assessment. How's that? I mean, this is great already. This is already solving my problem. So yeah, wow. I'm just going to log off now. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Aaliyah. <laughs> I, uh, I should just briefly mention that the um, there are actually a few elements within the film. Um, stress, a levered stress for high performance, fear, uh, what we call courage states, states of deep relaxation, ways to improve sleep. You know, insomnia is a central theme of the movie. Um, so we can, we can go down any one of these rabbit holes, you know, the danger in inviting a scientist on, um, (laughs) well, the two things you never want to say to a scientist. One is, uh, what do you work on? And the other is, um, take as much time as you want to respond. (laughs) And definitely don't want to say them in the same sentence. So I say uh, both of those things at the beginning of pretty much every podcast and it turns out great. I love it. (laughs) You're a brave man. Thank you. I've tried to convince other people of the same. Speaking of uh, insomnia, I wanted to ask you about that. He goes to the doctor. He says for six months, I couldn't sleep. And the doctor tells him, no, you can't die from insomnia. So is, is that true? And also he asks about, uh, narcolepsy. 
And uh, and yeah, I just wanted your your takes on that. Did you feel it was accurately represented there? You know, there are reports of people dying from insomnia, but um, more more likely they died of other things related to sleep deprivation, like you know falling and uh, other things that go wrong when you're badly sleep deprived. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, there are the first thing that's going to happen with insomnia is. Um, obviously, it's going to be fatigue during the daytime. It's going to be discombobulation, failure to organize one's thoughts. Remember, the brain wants to figure out duration, path, and outcome. How long is something going to take? What path is it going to take? And how's it going to end up? And that's true for everything except the stuff that you passed on to your reflexes, like making a cup of coffee or walking downstairs, assuming that you're, you're at the age where you know how to walk downstairs and you've made a cup of coffee before. But you know, as you move through life, you're, you're always, your brain's always trying to figure out duration, path, and outcome. When you're sleep deprived, your ability to, to figure those things out starts falling apart. This is why sleep deprivation is such a central theme of screening for high risk, high consequence, high performance professions like special forces. You know, the the notorious hell week that Navy SEALs go through, which is truly five days of no sleep with a 30-minute nap or so on the third or fourth day, maybe. Um, it's, it's designed to see who can keep their mind together to organize duration, path, and outcome as they move through that. So insomnia is going to pull that apart first. Then what's going to happen is insomnia is going to make somebody psychotic. It's going to start giving them auditory hallucinations. If you've ever been up for two nights in a row, you might hear someone saying your name from across the room and look and realize there's no one there. That was a genuine auditory hallucination. Hmm. And then if you continue that sleep deprivation, and a few people have done this, um, radio hosts back in the 70s and 80s um, most famously have done this, what's going to happen is uh, you start getting visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, and really uh, large amplitude shifts in alertness and sleepiness. So feeling exceedingly alert and almost manic, then feeling exceedingly uh, exhausted, like you can't move a, a limb on your body. So long before death comes psychosis, before psychosis comes discombobulation, and before that just comes the stress of not being able to sleep. So it sounds like you're kind of saying both to me, which is that it is accurate in the movie because he is having these advanced hallucinations of of Tyler Durden. He's creating a, a personality essentially, but also it sounds like it's not accurate because he would be exhausted and in the movie he's like taking off while he's asleep quote unquote and and accomplishing vast amounts of things and fighting and and that that would probably not be able to happen right pretty unlikely i mean people who are sleep deprived can have manic episodes and, you know people who have manic episodes like genuine you know bipolar disorder can go days on end without sleep there's something kind of interesting here in the biology that's uh true which is that even if you're completely sleep deprived let's say you stay up all night tonight what you'll find is that assuming you're on a typical schedule around 3 or 4 a.m., you're going to feel exhausted. But sometime right around the usual wake-up time, you'll start to feel awake again. And that's because you have so-called circadian, which just means about 24. That's what the word circadian means. Timers in your brain and in every cell of your body. And those circadian timers are used to waking you up uh, around the same time each day and making you sleepy around the same time each day. So even on a backdrop of sleep debt, aka insomnia, you are going to feel more alert during certain phases of that 24-hour cycle. And there will be times in which you have a lot of energy. But of course, none of this is to recommend sleep deprivation. You know, Unlike nowadays where everyone seems to be into intermittent uh, fasting and food deprivation, I keep waiting for the movement, the wellness movement of intermittent sleep deprivation, <laughs> but I think that would be entirely bad. Well, isn't there that famous um, like nap sleep cycle that like Da Vinci was a part of? 
Yeah. So, you know, sleep is broken up into 90 minute bouts of slow wave sleep and REM sleep. As you get more towards morning, you actually REM sleep more. Um, this is why you experience more dreams towards morning or you recall more dreams. And they tend to go in 90 minute cycles. There's actually a school of thought that if you can set your alarm to wake up at more or less the end of one of these 90 minute cycles, as opposed to in the middle of one of these 90 minute cycles, you're going to feel more rested, even if you're getting less sleep. So it's better to get six hours, for instance, than six hours and 40 minutes. Um, as long as you're waking up at the end of one of these 90-minute cycles. Now, some people have taken this to the extreme. Uh, this has shown up in various, you know, pop culture wellness books of, you know, could you just sleep for little bouts throughout the day? Um, you know, there is something important, however, about the continuity of sleep, in particular to control the a molecule called adenosine, which accumulates and kind of makes you tired, and it's your sleep debt. So, resetting adenosine to proper levels is something that's accomplished, not just by the total duration of sleep in a 24-hour cycle, one spin of the earth, but the continuity of that sleep. And this is why getting, you know, for new parents or uh, if you're getting woken up three times a night for whatever reason, even if you're getting the same total amount of sleep, it's not as restful because one 90-minute cycle bleeds into the next 90-minute cycle and they impact each other. They have a domino type effect. So it's not like the absolute amount of sleep is the only thing. It's really also important um, to strive for continuity of sleep. Not everyone can do that. Most people get up once or twice in the middle of the night. Most people don't know this, but you actually wake up several times during the night, open your eyes, look around and go back to sleep. You just don't know it because you're in such a deep state of relaxation. Now, as someone who's a non-scientist, I feel like what I think scientists love saying is that no one knows why we sleep. So I just wanted to check back with the science community. And is that true still? Or have we figured it out? We, the scientists. Yeah. So scientists rarely agree on anything. I disagree. Mm -hmm. I think we have some sense of why we sleep at a kind of macroscopic level. So mm -hmm. here's the reason why people say we don't know why we sleep. You can't point to one neurochemical reaction that is essential. There's a collection of things that happen in sleep. But you know, if during wakefulness, the brain is trying to figure out duration, path, and outcome, sleep is a very unique state of mind because even in dreaming, your ability to analyze duration, path, and outcome is out of your control. It's completely untethered. Space and time are completely fluid. And this is also what happens if you're not sleeping a lot. That those hallucinations are, are a space-time fluidity. What do I mean by that? So in sleep, let's say this were a dream right now, my dog, my bulldog Costello could float through the screen and sit down next to me and then maybe hang out with you guys, have some cookies, talk to your grandparents, and it would all seem normal because it's <laughs> in a dream. Your brain isn't analyzing and, and structuring anything in a judgmental way about duration, path, and outcome. But if my dog were to float through my screen in wakefulness, that would be a total violation of everything my brain knows about space and time. Now, that's not a biochemical explanation for why we sleep. That's a sort of cognitive, um, functional explanation for why we sleep. Now, you do need to roll molecules like adenosine back uphill. There's some adjustment in the potassium pumps of cells. There are some neurochemical and biochemical reactions that need to restore themselves during sleep. I think it's just it gives credence to the exploration. But I think everybody knows that sleep is at the foundation of immunity, cognitive function, mental health. I mean, the quickest way to pull somebody apart mentally and physically is to deprive them of sleep. So I. I think people are starting to migrate away from the whole idea that we don't know why we sleep and just really focus on the fact that we need it. You know, one thing I always say is when people say, you know, why is the brain organized that way? Why do we sleep in eight hour bouts instead of six hour bouts? Or 
why are we bipedal instead of quadrupeds or something? I always just say the same thing, which is, you know, neither I nor anyone else that I know was consulted during the design phase. So I really don't have an answer. <laughs> All right. My follow-up question, are naps good or bad? Because Ethan likes to nap and I don't. So which one of us is better as a person? Oh, well, <laughs> I'm not here to resolve any um, <laughs> debates between individuals, couples or otherwise, but um, I would say naps are great. Um, here yeah. for three reasons. First of all, immediately after learning, a 20 minute nap can accelerate the replay of neurons that were involved in learning. You know, it was long thought that learning only occurred in deep sleep or REM sleep. Those are actually two different things, but during slow wave deep sleep or during REM sleep, but it turns out learning is also occurring during shallow non-REM sleep um, that occurs during 20 minute naps. Now I will say that if you nap too long, if you go too deep uh, into a nap cycle, you'll start, some people will wake up feeling groggy or even a little bit irritable. So keeping the nap short is key, but overall naps are great. And then of course, my biased component of the answer is that I love naps. I, I'm a big napper and always have been. I'll take one or two 10 minute naps per day. I have many colleagues who, are, uh, who take naps of short duration. But then again, I have a couple of colleagues who claim that if you're napping a lot during the day, you're not getting enough sleep at night. So uh, it go, you can find an answer either way. Um, okay, but th that doesn't explain why I'm still stupid if I'm learning during <laughs> naps, but maybe that's my own personal problem. He's in a support group at one point for people that are dying of cancer, like late stage cancer, it seems. And they're going through this like guided meditation where he finds his cave and his power animal. And I just wanted your, your thoughts on that. Oh, yeah, the, I, I watched that, that sequence and it was interesting. I, for a second there, I was worried. I thought you were going to ask me about gynecomastia, but we could talk about that too, because that make, plays a prominent role in the film early what in is the that? film ah so early in the film um the character the main character is attending a support group for people with testicular cancer and his the person that he's partnered with is an ex-bodybuilder i guess who had testicular mm -hmm. cancer and then was on hormone Bob. therapy and he said that the guy had gynecomastia which is the medical term for overgrowth of the male breast tissue due to elevated estrogen um and what was interesting is in the film he describes that the gynecomastia in that particular individual was caused by excessive anabolic steroid use it actually is a common side effect of anabolic steroid use mm. because Anabolic steroids, of course, are most often derivatives of testosterone or testosterone itself. And testosterone is subject to a process in the body called aromatization. And as the name suggests, um, it's because some of the molecules involved actually have an odor, hence aroma. Uh, the interesting thing is um, most people don't know this, but during development, the brain of males, meaning people that have Y chromosomes, none of this is about gender, by the way, this is all about sex as it relates to hormones and chromosomes. Gender is a separate issue. The brain in normal development, so this is outside the film, of people with Y chromosomes, the brain of people with Y chromosomes is so-called masculinized um, because there are differences between the male and female brain, not by testosterone, but by testosterone that's been aromatized into estrogen. A lot of people don't know that. So the male brain is actually made male by estrogen. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. And do you meditate, go to a cave, and is your power animal your bulldog Costello or your sphinx Rory? Oh, you, you wow, you knew about Rory. So <laughs> this is, wow, I'm stunned. All right. So Here's the deal. So in the movie, he goes into this uh, mental cave, a kind of hypnosis thing. It's interesting. I have a colleague who studies medical hypnosis, and you know, hypnosis is is a little bit like a dreamlike state, 
where, but you're awake. And so the brain and body are open to suggestion. It's like being deeply relaxed with the context of your thinking, very narrowed and usually self-directed or sometimes guided by, by somebody who's hypnotizing them. So he, get, he puts himself into a kind of a self-hypnosis and his, I was surprised to see that his um, spirit guide was a penguin given that it's the movie is fight club. Um, when I do any kind of meditation and, and if I were to explore whether or not there was a spirit guide there, I would certainly would hope they'd be my bulldog Costello. Costello is mm -hmm. a 90 pound English bulldog mastiff. Aww. Now Costello's real love in life is a Sphinx, AKA nude cat named Rory. And they've been in a <laughs> lifelong, um, love affair and um <laughs> costello loves rory rory loves costello Aww. and um they they basically just sit there and kind of suck on each other's ears that's their Aww. favorite activity rory and yeah. costello sounds like a vaudevillian duo or something you know when i first heard that costello had a thing for the sphinx cat because it was my dog sitter that told me i didn't believe her <laughs> but costello despite being very large and um and quite physically robust it is a quite gentle creature. You'll actually find that, you know, bulldogs are very mellow. Bulldogs rarely scare people. Um, and I think it's because they're very still. Mm -hmm. They don't move much ever unless they <laughs> have to. And they are truly afraid of nothing. You know, I don't know what his brain looks like, but I think if we were to do a, a MRI on Costello's brain, we'd probably see that his amygdala, his threat detection center in his brain is probably like two cells big. <laughs> and that's probably also the reason why he's been skunked about 50 times. They just, <laughs> they're afraid. they hear something, they go straight in. So I think that's why they're the Marine mascot. This idea that, you know, they don't back away from danger. They just charge right in. Rory, on the other hand, is pretty timid, but Costello is exceptionally, um, uh, gentle with Rory. Uh, we're going to need some photo evidence or video after Definitely. this pod. Definitely. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a video of them doing what sort of amounts to bulldog nude cat jujitsu. Um, <laughs> fight club, a fight club of sorts. Yeah. That's great. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go. Back to the show about science. Um, okay, so there's a scene I wanted to ask about where he calls it uh, human sacrifices, but he's not actually sacrificing somebody, but he takes a, a convenience store clerk to the back and puts a gun on him, and then he tells him to, to, to go follow his dreams, right? He tells him to, to go, you know, if you're not on your way to becoming a veterinarian in six weeks... Uh, then I'm going to find you. Or I'm going to kill you or something. And then after he leaves, he's talking about how he, he freed him, how he's making, you know, he, the, his breakfast is going to taste better than any meal you and I have ever tasted the next day. And so I, I did want to ask about that phenomenon. Like, are we, you know, happier or more appreciative or grateful after we have some kind of near death experience? Well, that's a great question. I mean, that's getting into the realm of psychology, but well, I, I actually could just tell you by experience. So I had a very close brush with death a few years ago on a diving expedition. I had an air failure um, at Whoa. 40 feet. Um, this was actually, I think Seeker did something on that ex uh, covered sequence of that expedition. We were uh, cage exit diving with great white sharks. Um, and I had an air failure. Um, I can tell you that there are consequences of a near death experience. One is you're very grateful to be alive. And two is your level of autonomic arousal, your sort of threshold for stress is kind of lowered. I think it's because your system can potentially go into a kind of hyperreactivity. So it's not all rosy colored and wonderful. There's also a period in which your system can spontaneously perceive 
risk out of nowhere. I think this is kind of at the origins of, of things like PTSD, although I'm fortunate to not have any PTSD from that experience. But I think, you know, some people who make it through uh, life-challenging circumstances feel uh, immensely grateful and, and calm. And I, but I would think that most people, if it was a, a dangerous brush with death of that sort, would probably have some lingering anxiety in the background. So I don't know that he did that guy a favor. I also, not written into the movie was how that guy was supposed to make a living. I mean, being a veterinarian, I think, is a wonderful career. But last time I checked, it required some training and some <laughs> certification, at least I, I would hope so. I've never asked for my vet's um, diplomas on the wall. In fact, now that I think about it, they take Costello back there, and I never actually get to see what happens at all. Um, but I'm going to put, I'm going to put good faith in the vets of the world, um, and assume that they complete veterinary school and hey, nothing wrong with being a convenience store clerk. We all depend on them tremendously, but, uh, I think a gun to the head a little extreme. Yeah. And I have to ask, because you brought it up, did you use a rebreather? Were you buddy breathing? We just did a podcast about deep sea exploration. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay, with that so right now. some of us were on scuba. Some of us were on a hookah line that ran to the surface. Um, I was not cage exiting that day. Um, by the way, because some of your listeners may be like one of them, cage exiting with great white sharks, that's illegal. It is. We had permits from the from the government and the <laughs> preserve, by the way, so we did not break the law. This was part of like a science expedition? Then? Yeah, we were recording. Uh, my lab does studies fear. We were recording virtual reality for um, the laboratory. Uh, if you come to my lab, you can swim virtually with great white sharks while we record from your body or if you have electrodes in your head like some of the subjects that come to our lab we, we can record from your brain as well but yeah um, we're down yeah i honestly i volunteer in my brain because I, there's got to be something really interesting in there yeah and i'm um, just down for anything vr mm-hmm. oh great well our lab has an incredible vr suite we teamed up with a guy named M- michael muller who's a very well-known um photographer videographer out in hollywood if you just google him you'll you'll instantly be bombarded he shot the classic kobe image with the chalk like his last game i mean just michael's got tons of iconic photos under his belt so he was the one who taught me how to cage exit great white shark dive the air failure was on the hook line for me i managed to get out of there by um doing the so-called buddy breathing but there were some moments where there was no buddy around so that was um no pun intended (laughs) um that was a high tension moment um but like everything worked out okay we you know you Deal with these things as they come and don't cage exit dive with great white sharks. If you see a dorsal fin in the water, get it out of the water. They're not these vicious killers that movies like Jaws portray them to be, but they, they're wild animals and they get a vote too. And um, their vote is made according to very different criteria than what you, the criteria you might have in terms of why to stay or not stay in the water. Uh, I have deep respect for sharks, um, especially now having gotten out of there alive. And um, I did KJX at the next day. You know, part of the deal with getting over very stressful circumstances is to find an adaptive, non-life-threatening way to confront those threats. That's a big part of trauma and trauma release therapy is, you know, as a colleague of mine likes to say, it's not about the state you're in. It's also about how you got there and whether or not you had anything to do with it. So we could do a deep dive into trauma and trauma release and what that's all about. But, um, you know, you don't want people doing things that are going to harm themselves. But, you know, being able to confront and be in those highly elevated states of stress can sometimes have a utility too. The brain is very primed for plasticity in those ways, for better or for worse, in those times rather, uh, for better or for worse. And sometimes, uh, you know, the only way through it is through it. Wow. Awesome. Um, so let's jump out of the water and into the Fight Club basement here for a second. 
I wanted to ask kind of the big question about the movie, which is that he develops dissociative identity disorder. Uh, did you think that that was an accurate representation? Is it super extreme? This would never happen. Um, and, and could it be a result of uh, what we were talking about before, the insomnia? Look, great movie, but there's so many parts about those fight scenes that violate not just neurobiological principles, but principles of physical reality at every level. Maybe that's why it's such a cool movie. Um, I actually enjoyed the movie the second time I saw it. The first time I was like, this is ridiculous. But the second time I thought this is pre pretty clever because I think they were tapping into some interesting biology. Okay, so dissociative identity, you know, this is far more rare than movies would like to portray. There is a phenomenon that people who experience real trauma early in life can, um, which is often called splitting, where you, you might not see it as separate identities, but these are people that might um, toggle back and forth between being very calm, very rational, and then very extreme and kind of explosive. Uh, you know, one thing about the fight scenes that was just kind of beyond is, I mean, I've done some martial arts in my time when I was younger and even into my 30s, boxing and Thai boxing. I mean, most of the hits that they were showing, describing would put people into states of unconsciousness and, and brain damage that would... Yeah, like, I was thinking that throughout the whole movie that they just like yeah, get yeah, up yeah. after... Like I would be out for weeks, one punch. <laughs> so one thing that's realistic is that um, it's always surprising how little it hurts when you get hit and how much it hurts later. And that's because adrenaline has this incredible anti-pain uh, effect. But then once that adrenaline wears off, you're in quite a lot of pain for a long time. Uh, so yeah, but the guys in that movie were like, we're beating each other to a pulp. One thing that's kind of interesting that as a recent neurobiological fact is there are a couple of really good quality published papers showing that animals and presumably some humans too find aggression rewarding. They will actually work to fight, meaning it probably releases some dopamine. Um, this feel-good chemical in the brain. Mm -hmm. And my lab published a paper in, in 2018 in the journal Nature showing that forward action in the face of threat, provided it's adaptive, um, is very high anxiety. But if you perform well, it triggers the release of dopamine. In other words, courage is rewarded. So fighting, aggression, and courage kind of go hand in hand. And the really interesting thing is not work done by our lab but work that was done in the 1960s where people had electrodes embedded in their brain and they could stimulate anywhere they wanted and they would report how they felt. It was interesting. So they could stimulate areas that made them feel drunk or happy or sexually aroused or sleepy. And the brain area that these subjects all reported as the most satisfying, the one that they wanted to lever press the most for, so to speak, was the brain area that was equivalent to the one that we saw or that we see in our studies on courage and it's a brain area that subjectively humans report feeling frustration and anger. So believe it or not, anger, frustration, and probably complaining too in some groups is positively rewarded neurochemically in the brain. So does that mean that there's just like chemically some people that are more courageous or more aggressive? Definitely. I think we can reasonably conclude three things. One is that some people just naturally are going to lean into action more when they're feeling more what we call autonomic arousal. So increased heart rate, um, breathing rate, aka stress. Some people are going to be more action oriented. Some people are going to feel like, oh, this makes me feel terrible. And they're going to try and suppress all that stress in battle. Some people are more comfortable in that state. Others are not. And I think some people kind of show up to the table 
um, being more action oriented in times of stress and some animals like aggression more than others. I'll tell you when Costello, my bulldog was a puppy about maybe eight, nine months old. I take him to the dog park and up until he was about six years old, he loved to get in the scrap. He wouldn't fight. I want to be very clear. I'm not a proponent of dog fighting, but he loved to wrestle with other dogs. It's just kind of, if you look at a bulldog, they're kind of built for jujitsu. They just kind of like to rumble and (laughs) tumble around. A lot of dogs there, like the greyhounds, had zero interest. They're both the same species, but they get clearly different brains and different temperaments. But the bulldogs, the Rottweilers, especially the bulldogs, they love to tumble around in the mud and like pull each other down like crazy and they walk out of there so happy. Um, But, you know, then he hit a certain age where he couldn't be bothered to do that. He'd much rather take him out with Rory. Yeah, that's... First off, so cute. (laughs) I just keep picturing a visual image of the two of them and can't wait to see the real thing. So with um, like this chemically more aggressive thing, which animals are actually more aggressive? Like speaking of sharks, I feel like people say like, oh, they're not actually aggressive, even though they're portrayed as like these scary animals. Um, Besides like the dog breeds, what's a more aggressive animal? Well, first of all, hunger and maternal aggression are hardwired to make animals aggressive. So you can take a docile animal mm-hmm. and if it's hungry, it, it's going to be aggressive. Okay. So hangry is a real thing. There's a circuit in the brain across species. So I haven't had breakfast yet and I'm pissed by the way. <laughs> yeah. Even, well, it's interesting. Intermittent fasting probably leads to some increased focus uh-huh. and energy in part because of the adrenaline, not just because of all the blood sugar stuff. Uh-huh. I'm not a proponent of intermittent fasting or not. I'm just mentioning that, but I think that's one of the reasons some people like it. They feel more um, kind of activated. That's one just kind of general point, but among the various species. So in the shark diving community, you know, where I have a number of friends, they'll tell you, sure, great whites are the apex predator of the ocean. Some people say the killer whales, but the great whites are every bit as aggressive as you heard and seen in the movies when they want to be. It's just that they don't choose to be that way terribly often. But everyone knows in the shark diving community that bull sharks, the way that uh, they were referred to me by my friend, Michael Muller, is they're like mini great whites on methamphetamine. They are dangerous animals. And the, the lore, I don't know if there's any evidence for this, but the lore is that they have extremely high levels of androgens, things like testosterone and um, dihydrotestosterone, which is actually a derivative of testosterone. For those of you that want to know, in the aficionados, it's controlled by the uh, enzyme 5-alpha reductase. We can talk about that in a second, why that's relevant to all males out there. Um, but bull sharks have high levels of these androgens, at least that's the idea, and that's why they're so aggressive. They'll go all the way up into estuaries, like small rivers, in order to, to, get, uh, in order to hunt. So I wouldn't wow. want to encounter any of those in the wild. If you can't remember dihydrotestosterone and uh, 5-alpha reductase, just remember this. It's the thing that makes people go bald, and um, it's also the thing that makes people grow, men grow beards. Uh, the receptors for dihydrotestosterone, which is derivative of testosterone, are on the face and scalp, and they have opposite effects on those two areas. So they make mm-hmm. when dihydrotestosterone levels are high, hair falls out from the scalp, and beard growth accelerates, and aggression goes up. And oh, that's wow. because dihydrotestosterone is the main source of of androgen-induced aggression in mammals. Uh, so there, I just uh, gave you a little more info than you probably wanted, but. Um, no, that's great. Now I know to avoid bull sharks that are bald and have beards. Definitely. And that and is what's a red flag. And what's interesting is when you travel the world, this is changing now as people are traveling and, and you're having uh, children born to people from different backgrounds. But 
um, much more than you did, say, 100 years ago. But in some cultures, you'll notice that um, many of the men are bald but have beards. And in other cultures, beard growth is very light. You know, it doesn't say anything about the levels of dihydrotestosterone. It tells you about the distribution of the receptors in that particular genetic background. Mm. Um, hmm. well, yeah. Speaking of all guys, I did want to mention this in a, in a macro way because um, I figure a lot of people get this movie wrong. There's this like toxic masculinity uh, that surrounds this movie. And I know like Roger Ebert, I read a quote from him this morning that he just hated it because he just thought it was like ultra violent and I, I, you know, that it would promote that. And I think that a lot of people like the movie because of that, which is not the reason that I like the movie. And, and I just wanted to get your, your take on that. Well, it's, I mean, it's a movie that is grounded in the idea that aggression is a powerful source of, you know, kind of transcending the self or in, uh, you know, or self-discovery. And so, I mean, I can see why people would feel that way. I mean, look, I, I grew up um, doing science. Uh, I also was involved in martial arts. You know, the real, the real uh, beauty of the martial arts is not in their violence. It's, it's as some you know, other movies have, have said much better than I will, it's in the ability to control one's adrenaline response or to be non-reactive in the face of adrenaline. You know, when you look across society, you say, well, where are you know, most incarcerations, most bad behavior, right? is caused by a failure to regulate one's own internal state or, and that's true whether or not it's aggression or it's true suicide. When I say bad, I mean negative outcomes, right? Um, and it, the ability to feel a pulse of adrenaline or a huge surge of adrenaline, but to not act out, to not injure oneself or others, is it, that's where the real uh, growth of humanity lies, right? So the more reactive we are, the less adaptive we are. And so, so that's where that's where real growth lies. So would you recommend learning uh, a martial art? In other words, should I in, enroll in jujitsu or karate or should I create a fight club once uh, Kmart closes down where me and my friends get together and, you know, punch each other and uh, to a pulp? I am definitely a fan of martial arts that don't induce head damage. So, you know, I don't want to be hit anywhere. I want to add that as an asterisk yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, being hit or kicked in the head is just a bad idea for one's mental and physical health in the short term and in the long term. You know, I think there's great uh, value in martial arts like jujitsu, you know, getting into states where your adrenaline is high and figuring out how to deal with that uh, can be life-saving. And I, I do believe it can translate to other aspects of life. You look at stress differently. You look at your capability in the world differently. I think sports like martial arts like jujitsu and some of the other more traditional martial arts, I think, um, are great because you take fewer head hits. Um, boxing is a troubling one because you take a lot of head hits. And I don't recommend that. I mean, TBI is a real thing. Um, and, you know, even in, I have some friends who are ex-professional boxers and they'll say, you know, had I known then what I know now, um, then again, you know, everyone's entitled to make their own decisions. I do worry about kids getting involved in sports where they're taking head hits because they're not old enough to gauge what's good for them or not. But there's some, there's real value in some of the grappling sports um, for men and for women. You know, I mean, some of the best people out there rolling jujitsu are, are women. And, you know, and I think they'll tell you that there's so much to be learned from martial arts provided it's done in a, you know, in a 
the proper training environment and with the proper safety margins in place. So should we try to cancel football? You guys are asking some pretty tough questions. I mean, thank you. Just say the word and we'll do it. We'll yeah, we'll we spend have our that time. power. Yeah, I want to be very clear. My opinions are my own. Um, I'm not speaking for anybody else. You know, I I didn't grow up playing football. They just we didn't have a very good football team at my school, so I didn't play football. I grew up skateboarding, and I got hit my head a number of it's times. A lot skateboarding cooler. fell hard. Hippie was a number of times. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have friends that played football, and they'll tell you that the team aspect to it was invaluable and. Um, but yeah, you do, you have to gauge those mm-hmm. head hits against other things. I have I have a good friend named Chris Boylan who played for the 49ers, had a professional contract. He walked away from a fr- professional contract due to concerns about head injury. He's actually um, featured prominently in some of the major Netflix and other documentaries about this. He's um, very involved in mindfulness and other, he's a very impressive individual for a large number of reasons, not the least of which is his uh, encouragement to con- for people to consider not just the values of the teamwork and camaraderie and all that that comes from football, but also the the real concerns. I'm not. I can't say much about football. I didn't play it, but um, you know that machinery in your head that we call your brain is the most valuable machinery you've got, and you do not want to tamper with it if you can avoid tampering with its health. Yeah, I'll say yeah. that much. That's a beautiful statement, even if your machinery is a little bit broken and slow like mine. Um, First off, thank you so much for curing Aaliyah's blindness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's unbelievable. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, where can people find out about your your work? Um, sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, so to find out, for people that are interested in downloads of manuscripts published in scientific journals, et cetera, hubermanlab.com is a site where I have all those available. As, you, know, you can just download the PDFs and read up on what we do. There are a few videos there of some press coverage of what we do. But um, for people who are more broadly interested in neuroscience, not just the stuff done in our lab and in some applied neuroscience as well, things for research uh, information that can help with sleep and stress and things of that sort, I do a near daily but definitely weekly post on Instagram at Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B, where I teach neuroscience in short tidbits of about 30 seconds to six minutes, depending on the post. And I answer questions about neuroscience uh, of all kinds, and it uh, generally leads to a pretty lively exchange. And if nothing else, uh, you can learn a little bit more about the brain and teach your friends and family. Man, that's awesome. Fascinating to have you on the program. Learned about fighting and diving and yeah. at Huberman Lab on Instagram. I feel like next time you have a dinner party, you've got to invite us because you've Seem like you have a fascinating network of people that, you know, you said a professional warrior at one point and we just kind of glazed over that. (laughs) But seriously. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So my, um, maybe I should have said this at the beginning. So I I run my lab, research lab. I also teach medical students. That's my academic life. I, I teach neuroscience on Instagram as just a public service. I believe in information and especially information paid for by taxpayers should be accessible and understandable. You're here. Um, And then in addition, uh, you know, I do some consulting for people in the special operations community in Canada Mm. and the U.S., work with some of the um, elite special forces there. And so I have, and I have a lot of friends that, uh, I have a couple of very close friends that spent time in the, in the SEAL teams and other divisions of special operations. And then I have friends who are shark divers and photographers and ex-professional skateboarders and you know, I, I, I love the, the human species um, so much that I'm always interested in, uh, you know, what drives people and what people do for their stress, for their 
you know, to pursue their dreams. This is kind of, it gets kind of aspirational and abstract. My lab is very concrete. We work on concrete neurobiological problems, but I love creatives. And um, so the more people I can surround myself with uh, from diverse backgrounds of all kinds, the, the better off uh, my life is. And, and that includes species of animals too. So whether or not bulldogs, nude cats, come one, come all, you know? <laughs> not to toot our own horns, but now you also know two people that were on a podcast. So that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. That's right. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to comment on the movie, to chat with you, and also to um, pass along, hopefully, what was some interesting science to people. I, I want to highlight that very little of the science I talked about was my work. It's the collection of many different groups. So if people want to know the actual papers of origin and all that, feel free to write me. There are portals to write me on Instagram and through my lab website. More like Professor Humbleman. We got to have uh, you back on to talk about uh, another Jaws movie or Black Hawk Down or Tony Hawk Pro Skater 4. I feel like you can just talk to anything. My life is one in which I view all of life through and experience through the lens of neuroscience. So if you throw out a topic, I'll tell you what neuroscience has to say about it at this point in time. We certainly don't know how the brain works, but as a field, you know, we know a couple of things. And so I'm happy to pass that uh, neuroscience lens over whatever topic you, you, uh, you present. Fantastic. Well, talking about science communication, Aaliyah, would you like to promote your podcast or anything else? Oh, yeah. I have a new podcast coming out um, called Science Communicators with a Z. And um, I host it with my writing partner, Kim Seltzer. And that will be out at some point. I don't know if it'll be out when uh, this gets released, but I'm sure it's just a Google search away. Could you tell me a little more about the podcast? I'm very interested in public forums for science education. Now, Kim and I sort of have no science experience, but we're just going to be communicating science in a 100% unbiased, unfiltered way, um, which will be probably pretty biased. And um, we're going to be answering questions submitted by listeners. Um, So we're super excited to start that. That's great. And, you know, taxpayers pay for science to be done and they very rarely get to learn what they've paid for. Um, And there's a real opportunity in podcasts like the one that you're describing. I'm really excited to hear that you're doing it. There's also an important movement, you know, that's not an yet organized movement, but is to improve um, the diversity of, of science educators and scientists that are out there. So great to hear that two, uh, I think you said your partner in this is a, is a woman mm-hmm. that part, the two women are going to be doing this is great. And then um, as a final thing, um, if ever you want me to put you in contact with people from different corners of science, I've got uh, wonderful friends and colleagues, everything from like gut microbiome to sleep, to virology, to animal conservation. You know, there's a whole um, network of, of nerds that, um, uh, I have access to that I, I think you'd enjoy talking to, depending on the topic. Uh, That's awesome. Just got yourself a booking job, sir. Um, thank you <laughs> so much for for joining us. I hope to talk to you soon. I really appreciate you taking the time. And and you, Aaliyah, of course, as thank well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bad Science is hosted and produced by me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our associate producer is Emily Feld. Our editor is Lucas Bollinger. And our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. Shout out to EJ and Kate. I love you. Don't tell my girlfriend. And Jack's executive producer is Brett Kushner. Oh, follow us on Instagram at BadSciencePod. If there's a movie you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, feel free to email at BadScienceAtSeeker.com. That's BadScienceAtSeeker.com. And please leave us an iTunes review. Give us five stars. I sound like an Uber driver. But it does help. It makes sure people know about the podcast, which we really appreciate. Thanks for listening. Bye.